This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education X. Thank you for joining us. Scientific research is being placed under the microscope. A group of skeptical scientists are identifying a lot of scientific work that seems to lack credibility. They published their critiques on a blog site entitled Data Colada, which seems to be named after the cocktail Pina Colada, but instead, if you look carefully, it means to strain the data. So they're sort of suggesting that scientists are straining the data to get what they want. Data Colada is having an impact. A couple of months ago, the president of Stanford University was forced to resign his position as president. And a tenured faculty member at the Harvard Business School has been assigned to administrative leave until Harvard University has completed an assessment of her research on, of all topics, honesty. So we now are raising questions about the accuracy and even the honesty of people who are quite prominent within the scientific community. So now we have the case of Kirabo Jackson, who has just been nominated by President Biden to his Council of Economic Advisors. Jay Green finds inconsistencies and errors that may be more than just accidents, and he's brought them to public attention by putting his testimony in a court case up online. Well, I'm very pleased to have Jay Green on the Education Exchange today. He is former chair of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas and is currently a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. So, Jay, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me on. Well, Jay, you don't actually say that Kirabo Jackson is presenting false facts inside the courtroom, but you do cast doubt on the credibility of his testimony in an adequacy lawsuit case. So first of all, before we go into the details of the testimony, let's talk about what is an adequacy lawsuit? Sure, and I should say, actually, there are some false facts that I can document too, but but before we get into that, you're right. We should talk about what an adequacy lawsuit is and how this information all came to light. So uh, there have been um, uh, efforts to file suit in state courts around the country over the last couple decades um, to invoke state constitutional provisions about the state's obligation to provide an education. So many state constitutions have some sort of phrase that say that the state will provide an adequate education or an efficient education or something like that. And these clauses have been invoked to try to convince courts to order an increase in expenditure to satisfy that state constitutional obligation. So essentially the plaintiffs are saying that the state is failing to, to fulfill its constitutional obligations by failing to spend enough money on schools uh, because outcomes would improve, it would be more adequate or more efficient um, if more spending uh, were to occur. And, it's sort of interesting that this is a case where you become more efficient by spending more money. Usually we've become more efficient by spending less money, but anyhow, it is interesting that efficiency has been turned into a clause in the Constitution that says you need to spend more in order to have adequate schools. And they've been very successful, these lawsuits. I, there's some that have failed in some states, but 
in many states across the country, courts have actually ruled that uh, the schools are not educating students up to the needed uh, level, and therefore they need to spend more money in an effort to do so. So this is a this is quite a substantial topic out there uh, in in American uh, courtrooms. Yes, it has. Um, and look, this this is um, you know part of of how you play politics is if you can't win in the legislature, try in the courts. Maybe you can win there. Um, and uh, the unions and uh, others wishing to increase expenditures are are trying to find every means possible for getting states to pony up more money. Um, and they have been very successful. Um, even adjusted for inflation per people spending has uh, nearly tripled uh, in, in uh, you know, roughly the last half century. Um, and so uh, there have been very tiny blips in this, but it's been a pretty steady upward trend in per pupil spending. Uh, the report that I released through the Heritage Foundation. But before we get to your report, let's, let's just talk a little bit about why social scientists and economists in particular uh, get called as expert witnesses in these cases. Because, uh, you know, you could say if, you, if schools aren't getting enough money, bring in some school superintendents who will say, look, I don't have enough money to uh, take care of needed repairs in the school or pay my teachers adequately. And I think those kinds of witnesses are in fact called. But in addition to that, they're now bringing in uh, economists and sociologists and scientists of one stripe or another who are coming in and testifying. I've looked at some data out there in a very rigorous way. And that tells me either that money doesn't make a difference or money does make a difference. They, you know, some economists will testify on one side and some will testify on the other side. Is that, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, as various um, traditional forms of authority have declined, uh, including practitioner wisdom um, and experience, um, uh, social science as a form of authority has risen dramatically over the last few decades. And so you can think of social scientists uh, operating effectively as the secular priests of our age, who we consult uh, to tell us what... Uh, is wise and true um, about what to do. And in fact, I think this is part of the problem that we're seeing in social science more generally, and, and that is illustrated in this specific case uh, with Carabelle Jackson, is that uh, we're giving way too much authority to work that cannot possibly support uh, that burden. Well, that's an interesting observation that the, uh, it makes me feel great that I'm a social scientist and that I'm now an authority figure and even I could be a god who could sort of bless, uh, could predict the future and could uh, decide what's what's true and what's Well, false. you're a priest who speaks for the gods. It's close. Oh, okay. A priest. <laughs> that, that's good. So I'll be a priest. So in any case, that's actually sort of what we have here in the case at hand. Uh, you, we have a courtroom. Uh, Mr. Jackson comes in on one side and presents evidence that money, if you properly analyze the data, can make a huge difference for uh, student learning. And you come in on the other side and you say, wait a minute, this methodology that you're using and the way in which you're interpreting your material doesn't really hold up to scientific standards. 
So first of all, let's get, what did uh, Kirbal Jackson actually testify? What's his testimony? So just to be clear, um, this never actually went to court um, in New York. The litigation was filed. The expert documents were, were um, produced, um, but it was settled um, prior to, to having to go to trial. Um, and, but in the documents uh, that Caribou Jackson submitted in this case, and in a very similar prior case in Delaware, where we were both involved as well, um, he essentially was reproducing uh, working paper versions of two papers, which have subsequently been published in peer-reviewed journals. One is his Great Recession paper, and the other is his meta-analysis. The Great Recession paper says that we can look at spending cuts that occurred during the Great Recession to see- Now, if, the Great Recession, yeah. I've always had problems with the Great Recession because it makes me think of the 1930s, but I don't think this is the 1930s. You're talking about the recession of, uh, at the end of George W. Bush's term in office, 2000. That's right. It, it, sometimes, it goes by the name Great Recession. If you don't like that term, we can avoid it, but, but it's the recession that occurred um, around 2008 is when, around when it started. Um, and um, in some states, there were some cuts in education, although not very much and not very widespread, but, but it, it was unusual in that cuts actually occurred uh, somewhere. Um, and what Jackson did is he took advantage of the fact that states also vary in how reliance they are on state revenue for total ed education expenditure. What share of the spending comes from state revenue as opposed to local revenue? And the state revenue he posits is more sensitive to economic cycles. And therefore he uses that as an exogenous instrument to predict how large the cuts would be in states uh, and then uses that instrumented amount of cuts to then uh, predict the effect of spending cuts on achievement test results as well as attainment results. So I think what he's doing here is he's saying the Great Recession comes as a great shock out of the sky, as out of the sky, a bolt from the sky, and and but it has different impacts in different states because some schools are highly dependent on state aid for money, and state aid is highly sensitive to the. Uh, sales tax and the income tax, which can fluctuate within a year to the next, uh, as distinct from local governments, which are very dependent on the property tax. And so he's sort of saying, look, I can use this, uh, this shock to the state revenue source as a way of, of, uh, of saying these are the states which had to cut their school spending. That's exactly right. Now, of course, he could have looked at the share of revenue that came from income tax and sales tax, but instead he uses the state revenue versus local revenue as a proxy for that. Now, this is complicated by the fact that in some states, some of the state revenue comes from property tax. Um, and in some places, local revenue comes from income tax. Uh, nonetheless, uh, and, and so it's a string of, of messy assumptions here, but but let's let's just start with, there are different states with different shares of revenue that come from state sources as opposed to local sources. There's one really important state in his data set, which is Washington, DC. It's not actually a state. Well, since it's not a state, what's it doing in a state analysis? Well, it's it's in there. 
uh, it's, it's 50 states and DC. And, and DC, uh, what is the state share? Now, according to the data source that Jackson uses, the state share of revenue in DC is NM not meaningful, okay? So it, 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 there is no answer, it, it doesn't mean anything. Jackson decides that it's zero and he uses the number zero instead of missing. He could have thrown it out, but he doesn't. He uses zero, okay? Now he separately shows as a robustness check what happens if you throw out DC, but that's not the main analysis, that's a robustness check. Now, so why is it zero? Uh, it could be a hundred. Um, but he picks zero. Because none of it comes from the district, does it? Doesn't it all come from either the federal government or from... Uh, I actually don't know if they get any from what are considered local property tax sources. But whatever it is, the data source says it's not meaningful because it's a very confusing question in D.C. Um, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And okay, it's but it's just it's just one case. So that, since it's just one case, it's not going to make any difference. Is no, it? no, 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 no. This is a state level analysis. So it's uh, and in fact, as it turns out, um, we've tried uh, with help from Josh McGee. Um, we tried 120 different permutations of the composition of this model that Jackson could have done. So changing which data source he uses, changing how DC is classified, and changing where he sets cutoffs for what is a low, medium, or high reliance on state revenue. All of these things are somewhat arbitrary, and a priori, you could have made any of the other choices. Uh, we look at 120 different permutations of those options, and in 104 of those 120 permutations, the results are insignificant. But Jackson managed to find. Now, when you say when you say results are insignificant, you mean there's no evidence that the change in the revenue share had any effect on student performance. That's right. The spending change did not affect student outcomes. Uh, they the change the effect was not distinguishable from zero. But that's sort of the old-fashioned finding, isn't it? The old-fashioned finding for for spending money is that. It's very hard to show that spending more money leads to higher student performance. Now, of course, if you spent no money at all, probably student performance would be less. So it can't be literally true that spending money never makes any difference. But given the state of American education, shifts in spending within a reasonable range it doesn't really seem to have much of an effect. That's exactly right. Um, it's not that that money can't matter. It's just that on average money doesn't matter because we're clearly above the level of spending necessary to produce desirable outcomes. And on average, schools appear not to use additional funds in ways that are particularly productive, and they tend to fritter those away without producing significant improvements. And that's why the, we, we don't observe uh, in kind of straight correlations, uh, a relationship between higher spending and higher outcomes. It requires these, these very fancy techniques to, to find that relationship. And so you find the same thing in New York and with respect to the Great Recession. The Great Recession has very no detectable impact unless you analyze the data in a very specific way that Mr. Jackson chose to, to do. Right, right. So, so you know, 
there's this credibility revolution in economics, which people are very excited about because they think it allows them to identify causal effects. Um, and that can be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing in that what it's done is it has introduced a, uh, an, a dramatically increased opaqueness to social science. So it's very hard for even other social scientists, let alone lay people, to understand all of the choices that have to be made in these models. And the more choices, by the way, that there are to be made, and the harder it is to follow them, the more uh, we call call it re researcher degrees of freedom. That is, they can choose different models, different time periods, that all the choices they're making can, can either help produce a desired outcome or av avoid an undesired outcome. And it's this remarkable increase in opaqueness and researcher degree of freedom that allows Jackson to find the result that he finds and avoid the result that he doesn't want to find. Well, let's just back up again, because this is not just economists and it's not just social scientists. This comes up in medical research as well. In medical research, you have to lay out before you begin your analysis exactly how you're going to do your analysis, what data you're going to be using, uh, what, what, what kinds of things are going to be controlled for. All the details of your analysis have to be laid out before you begin to analyze the results from your, from your clinical trial. Because they know that these pharmaceuticals would love to have a lot of researcher degree of freedom because the researchers could then always show that the pill always works. So the FDA has really closed the door on that with all kinds of specifications in how you can do the research. Certainly pre-registration would help reduce the problem of researcher degree of freedom, but you know, a lot of this isn't simply rules, but is kind of norms of the profession. And so we have to kind of restore norms where the researchers themselves think that they should be very skeptical of themselves and their own work. And I think that that has fallen away as, as social scientists have risen to this priestly status and have more power, they're more corrupted by that power. They're tempted to use it more, and they think they're doing it for good, but they're abandoning the norms of their own profession uh, and, and manipulating results for desired outcomes, which I think is exactly what you see when 104 out of 120 permutations of the model in the Great Recession paper would give you no results, but you manage to find the one that gives you the result you want. That's, that's one paper. He, he did two papers, you mentioned. Right. So the other paper was on... What was, what the, so what the, the, the other paper is a meta-analysis, um, which claims to be a systematic review of all causal studies of the relationship between spending and student outcomes, okay? And uh, in it, he claims to find that, um, that there is a, a small but statistically significant positive relationship between uh, uh, increased spending uh, and student outcomes, according to his systematic review of the literature, um, that this is, is disproportionately benefit, beneficial for low-income students. When you say student outcomes, what do you mean by student outcomes? So he looks both at test scores and attainment outcomes. Attainment being what? Being Going how far in school you go. Do you graduate high school? Do you go to college? Do you finish college? That sort of thing. Um, now, uh, there are many different flaws in this. Uh, one of the interesting things about the meta-analysis is that 
he produced working paper, six different working paper versions of this, which were submitted as documents in court cases, but also posted on his websites before he settled on the final one. So you could actually see him changing which studies were included, how he classified the results of the studies, and what analyses he was doing. You could see him changing it in real time from one version of the study to another. So you could see all the drafts. The drafts were public, basically. Uh, normally, that whole process is concealed, but here you could see it. So you could see him. It seems like uh, honesty. He's he's being he's not he's being anything but opaque. He's letting you actually. Uh, well, uh, sure. Um, although although working papers tend to disappear when the version finally gets published, uh, he was just so eager to get the results out that he was putting up the working papers uh, as he was amending them. Um, and then I, I imagine he thought of each change as an improvement, right? He just was improving the results each time he, he changed them. But the, the results changed in particular directions. I mean, my, my favorite change is that in one version, there is no differential benefit for low-income students. And then five months later, he reruns that analysis with a different specification, and he finds that there is a differential benefit for low-income students, and that effect has a p-value of 0.0497, which is just below the threshold of 0.05 for reaching statistical significance. So he managed to get it just under the bar. Um, and that's what p-hacking looks like, right? You know, when you try it over and over again until you get below p-hacking. Now, what is p-hacking? I've never heard p-hacking. Well, right. I've heard of it once before, but I'm sure yeah. our listeners need to be told what p-hacking is. Sure. P-hacking is, is uh, or specification shopping, um, are um, uh, when researchers try different analyses until they find an analysis that yields a statistically significant effect. And statistical significance is typically measured with a p-value, and a critical threshold for a p-value to be considered statistically significant is uh, often 0.05. So you p-hack if you just keep trying the analysis with in different ways until you can get that p-value below 0.05 and then can declare the relationship statistically significant. And that process is known as p-hacking or specification shopping. Um, and that's very much what it looks like at, when you look at these drafts. But frankly, that isn't even the worst part about the meta-analysis. The worst thing about the meta-analysis that Jackson ultimately published is that it claims to be a comprehensive review of the literature on the relationship between spending and outcomes, but it isn't. And the reason why it isn't is that properly understood, every educational intervention that costs money is a study of the effect of spending on outcomes. And what happens is when, when an intervention that costs money proves effective, researchers are more likely to classify that study as a school spending st study. They say, see, Spending works because um, it produced this, this benefit. Um, but when you study that same intervention and it doesn't yield a positive effect, then they tend to classify that study as an evaluation of the intervention as opposed to a school spending study. And we can actually see this in Jackson's meta-analysis where the same federal school turnaround program where they were trying school turnaround models uh, there was one analysis that produced a positive result, and that study 
was included in his meta-analysis and considered itself a school spending study and used that language. But there was another one with, with a negative result that he didn't include in his meta-analysis and it doesn't call itself a school spending study. It's the same intervention, it's the same expenditure, okay? Um, and so what I did to reveal this, the incompleteness of Jackson's literature is I plotted a histogram or a bar chart of the effect sizes of all the studies he included. And it looks like half of a bell-shaped curve with the negative half chopped off. Okay, so it's a truncated normal distribution at zero. So it looks like the true mean of the full distribution would be zero, but he's he he's missing the bottom, the, all, the entire negative half of that distribution. It's well, that's a little speculative, but have you actually tried to look at all studies that do in fact look at uh, spending? Uh, my guess is that would be quite a task. So I think that's part of the problem is that it's actually intractable. I mean, the the what you're talking about is, is almost every study that's done in education policy research is really a study of school spending, sort of, right? If if every intervention costs money, then we then every schools when they get extra money can choose which interventions they're going to do right and sometimes they choose good ones and sometimes they choose bad ones and so every evaluation speaks to what schools might do if they were to get extra money and the real question is on average do they tend to make good choices or bad choices and do they have a lot of good choices to choose from now as it turns out we know from the what works clearinghouse that most interventions don't work Right, the vast majority of things that we try in education—that is, things that cost money—produce null results, which tells us something about what the true effect is of increased spending. Which is most things don't work, which means most spending doesn't work. Um, well, this so, may be this may be true, but now does Jackson have a reply? Has he no. responded <laughs> to your your critique here? Uh, I, I guess this case was settled out of court, so we don't have uh, a, a, your, I, we don't have a cross examination of your testimony. But uh, do we have any? Does we do we have any way of seeing how he responds to your criticisms? Not really, no, because he um, he's uh, unwilling to engage. I'd be happy to appear in a public forum and discuss this. Um, he's unwilling. He's blocked me on Twitter. Um, he has not engaged with the criticism. Um, mostly he appeals to authority. He says, look, you know, um, I've published my work in high status journals. I'm a high status economist. Um, and I think he's resting on that authority uh, rather than attempting to engage this argument. Um, and, you know, you can get pretty far that way. I mean, I, I was thinking about um, uh, Alan Kruger another kind of high status economist, award winning, Nobel Prize winning. And I remember that he took on a study you did, Paul, many years ago, uh, where similarly of like a hundred different permutations of the model, he managed to find the one that gave him the result he wanted. And you and and I think it was Marty uh, demonstrated that uh, very effectively. Um, William Howell, actually. William yeah. Howell, that was it, William Howell. Um, and uh, but that didn't didn't seem to hinder Kruger's career at all. I think he subsequently went on to win the Nobel Prize. And so maybe maybe there's no need to engage. So well, that was in the olden days when we didn't have such sophisticated thinking on these issues. So 
maybe we can forgive uh, Kruger for for being a person of his time. But I mean, it's been there's been advances in social sciences, and there is now a, a literature out there on on uh, you know you got to make sure that you follow procedures that uh, you know prevent the investigator from manipulating the data to get what he wants. So so here we have him. I take it he's been nominated to become a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, and he'll need to be confirmed by the Senate. Is this going to come up as an issue in the confirmation process? I actually didn't even realize it needed confirmation. I, I, sus I suspect it won't necessarily come up. Uh, and I have no intention of, of making any trouble uh, on, on this. Um, uh, uh, I don't think I don't think Jackson is particularly guilty uh, here. So I'm I'm less optimistic about about the advances in social science than you are, Paul, because um, I think one of the things that's worrisome in this instance is how unable leading journals were to detect and prevent publication of these works with obvious flaws, very obvious flaws. Um, and so I don't, I, I think that rather than trying to ever perfect social science, maybe we should just kind of lower our expectations and the amount of authority we invest in social science, recognizing that this temptation for corruption is inevitable when social science is given too much power. Well, thank you very much, Jay. This is a fascinating discussion. We could go on all afternoon. But thank you very much for sharing your uh, thoughts on the state of social science and uh, uh, the expert witness testimony of Curable Jackson in school finance cases. Thanks for having me on. I've been speaking with Jay Green. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, the foundation has just issued a report which is entitled New Yorkers for Students' Educational Rights versus the State of New York Expert Report of Jay Green. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website. Thank you for joining me.